Good afternoon, and welcome to Money Matters. My name is Jim Butler with Forefront Advisors, and we have a special show today, a little different format, uh, where we are speaking directly with our guest. And our guest today is going to be Phil Caparelli, who's a managing director with JP uh, Morgan. And we're going to have an interesting dialogue. The one thing I'll mention at the outset here uh, is the timing of when this show is being taped uh, as to when it gets aired is going to be different. Uh, we will minimize any uh, issues related to uh, timing as far as uh, calendar uh, events, but generally speaking, uh, we are in the early summer or mid-June timeframe. Welcome, Phil, to the show. It's good to be here, Jim. Thanks for asking. You bet. So a good place to start is just to establish uh, some uh, credibility and notoriety. Uh, can you give us uh, a two-minute version or, or so of, uh, number one, your background, yep. uh, and then your role with J.P. Morgan? Sure. Sounds great, Jim. So uh, I've been at this is this July. Uh, I'm at J.P. Morgan 20 years. I've spent my entire career at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Graduated from Fordham University in the Bronx in in 2000, and I spent the first 11 years of my career as a fixed income portfolio manager. And then in 2011, I made the switch to multi-asset investing. Um, and it's been great. What I do is I travel around the country and I speak to financial advisors. And I really try to not only deliver our macro view, but what that means in terms of when you should invest in equities, when you should invest in fixed income. And then the next layer, which is oh so important, especially now, which is what parts of the world should you be in within equities and fixed income and even the styles. So my job is great. I never run out of things to talk about. Uh, and I really have to answer to all asset classes all over the world, which is which is a lot of fun to do, especially during a global pandemic that we're seeing right now that touches every single asset class. So I'm very pleased to be with you here today. Great. Well, um, that's going to be very interesting uh, because um, I, I, it's almost like I don't know. I know where to start. I'm not going to know where to end. Yeah. Uh, so, but the starting point, uh, because of what the market has done, uh, and let's use the market as the equity market, the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, and Nasdaq. Um, so, what can you? What insight can you provide initially yep. as to what you have seen? Uh, happened since January and through this pandemic situation. Yeah, Jim, that's it. That's a good place to start. Um, January seems like, you know, a, a, a decade ago in terms of of this of this year so far in 2020. And this year isn't even half over. Um, so we came into the year pretty bullish. Actually, we came into the year believing, okay, we have phase one of a trade agreement between the U.S. and China, and people were really pulling their hair out for most of 2019 in terms of, and part of 2018, in terms of the U.S.-China trade relations. Um, we also had a Federal Reserve that basically told us they're on the sidelines, okay? Uh, they eased a couple of times in 2019, and then but by the end of 2019, specifically in October, they said, that's it, we're done. There's nothing, no more for us to do. So that took 
two very big variables that move the market and provide volatility out came into this year with trade on the sidelines and the Fed on the sidelines, which was great. Okay. And then fast forward to, um, to February and it appeared like we would have some sort of, um, some sort of supply side or emerging market issue when it came to COVID. But for the most part, in the beginning of this thing, most folks believed that this would stay in the emerging world, much like a lot of the past episodes like SARS did earlier in the 2000s. However, when, you know, I, I remember exactly where I was when we came in that morning and realized that it wasn't going to stay in the emerging world. Jumped to Italy, jumped to Iran, and in that environment, what we did was we took risk down pretty materially because, you know, this wasn't going to be contained. This wasn't going to just be a supply side issue, but also a demand side issue, thanks to social distancing. So uh, by March 15th, Jim, uh, we reduced our equities by close to 20%. Mm. And we increased our government bonds by 20%. So we made a very big adjustment in the portfolio because, you know, I don't know about you, but, but you know, that week of March 16th, was basically the worst case scenario. The week of March 16th was really the first week. The last time I was in the office in New York City was Friday, March 13th. But on March 16th, there was people. There were people scrambling to set up from home. Right. Everything you heard ended with the words "worse since the Great Depression," right? Uh, and there was an all-out run on cash. All-out run on cash. And it doesn't matter if it's 1920 or if it's 2020. Uh, if there's a run on cash and a run on banks, that will just cripple your financial system. So, you know, by the middle of March, Jim, we took our risk down materially. Um, but one of the things that really, to, to bring us kind of to where we are now, one of the things that, that totally got our attention was not just the willingness of policymakers to avoid the worst case scenario, but also the ability of policymakers to avoid the worst case scenario. So what's the worst case scenario for the Fed? Um, a run on the banks, okay? Uh, diversification not working. That was exactly what was happening in the week of March 16th. And it was March 23rd, Jim, where they announced at eight in the morning that they'd be buying corporate bonds. And I think that was the pivot for us because that showed that this was not a normal recession. Normal recessions happen when there's too much leverage, there's too much exuberance. Valuations are too high, like in the late 90s in the dot-coms. This was not a normal recession. This recession was man-made. This recession was driven by a humanitarian crisis where we needed to forcefully power down our economy. So in that environment, when it's not a normal recession, that gives policymakers air cover to basically deliver shock and awe and anything that they want to confront a very adverse environment. So for the first time, I think, Jim, in 80 years, the Fed uh, announced that they'd be buying corporate bonds. They never would be able to get away with something like that in a normal recession. Could you imagine back in the great financial crisis in 08, TARP had, enough, had a hard enough time passing. Could you right. imagine if the Fed came out and said, we're gonna buy the bonds of the <laughs> banks? That would never be able to happen. However, one of the things that allowed them to do it this time is because it was a humanitarian crisis. The, and that allowed the capital markets to start to heal. On March 23rd, equities stopped falling. The VIX stopped rising. Things like LIBOR and funding rates stopped increasing. 
Um, and credit spreads have just been on a one-way train really since then. So they definitely have the upper hand. And it went hand-in-hand hand with what Congress did. I mentioned a minute ago, back in 08 and 09, TARP failed the first time. Okay. However, the CARES Act passed 96 to nothing in the Senate. And if you add it all up now, Jim, we're talking about as of, of stimulus close to $4 trillion right now. Um, that, is a, that is a shock and awe, wartime-like bipartisan spending for, for Congress. If worst case scenario for the Fed was a run on the banks, you know what worst case scenario for Congress is? 40 million people filing initial jobless claims right. and there being no shock absorber for that shockingly awful data that has occurred in the second quarter. So they stepped up big time. Direct stimulus checks, um, the expansion and enhancement of their unemployment benefits, and then the payroll protection program or the PPP loans. And Jim, yeah. those two things got us going. But I think what has really taken this, this, this market higher is, I think, the validation that the worst of the economic drawdown has occurred in months like March and April. And with the gradual reopening, yeah, there may be some more, some more positive tests because of the reopening. But I think where we're, where we're at now is what do hospitalization rates look like? Do we have the treatments? Do we have the abilities to really mitigate these fires that pop up throughout the country. Um, and I think that's something that the market is dealing with right now. So to that point, you know, we have our equities right now back at where we came into the year, actually. Um, okay. So, you know, we've caught a lot of this rally and we're just looking for ways to diversify that risk right now. So, Phil, go back to one of your comments in uh, mid-March, uh, I believe, when yep. you said the Fed had made the decision to buy corporate bonds, first time they had done that in 80 years. Uh, any insight as to why that decision was made? And did they have some special foresight that that was going to work the way it yeah, did? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. And it's something that I'll give Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve a lot of credit for. Uh, they did the easy stuff first. They took rates to zero and they announced open-ended quantitative easing pretty quickly. In fact, I'm not sure, Jim, if we're ever going to see this again in our career, but it took them 17 trading days from the market high back on February 19th mm -hmm. to take rates to zero. <laughs> so they were from an all-time high on February 19th, 17 trading days later, the federal funds rate was at zero, right? That's how quickly they responded. But what you're, at, you're asking about the corporate bond purchase program, the week before that, Okay, diversification was broken. You couldn't get a bid on any corporate bond if you needed to sell it in order to meet a redemption. Forget high yield. High yield was completely off the table. If you needed to sell high yield, good luck. There were no bids for that because you know fixed income market makers weren't sitting at their trading desks. They were sitting at their dining room tables, right? And nobody was was willing to to really take a lot of risk in terms of taking on um, on taking on that that type of credit risk. So to the Federal Reserve's credit, I think the weekend before that was announced, so that would be March 21st and March 22nd. March 23rd was a Monday when they announced it. That weekend, Jim, they were on the phone with asset managers like ourselves and primary dealers, basically interviewing market makers like ourselves and asset managers. You know, what do we need to do, right? And, you know, the overwhelming response back to them was you have to validate and support diversification. 
so that if you need to sell a corporate bond, we know that there will be a buyer of last resort in the form of the Federal Reserve. Okay? And that's, I think, why they announced that program. And, Jim, we've seen tremendous tightening in the corporate bond space, in high-yield space. They really haven't bought anything. They've bought a couple of ETFs here and there. But I think just the sheer um, acknowledgement that the Fed walks into your store, prices are going to go up, has allowed asset managers like ourselves to kind of almost front-run the central bank policymakers. That's the intent. The central bank says, yes, they have the ability to do it. And then asset managers like ourselves take our cues from that and then go in and start purchasing bonds kind of ahead of them because we know that that, that, that market will be explicitly supported. And Jim, we're treating investment-grade corporate bonds right now as the new treasury bond, right? The new mm -hmm. government bond because they they have such explicit support and because government bond rates are so low. And Phil, was there any issue in those early stages or maybe initial conversations regarding the pricing of those bonds? Because it, it, again, you have to have some kind of equilibrium between the pricing of the bonds and what effect that would have on interest rates, you know, with, with Fed funds being so low. Uh, so were there discussions around the pricing as to what the Fed was willing to pay for those bonds? Uh, no, so so they when they announced that on March 23rd, uh, Jim, you know, it, it, it took them a little while <laughs> to finally get their programs in order. They actually started buying that those bonds about two months later. So, oh. you know, after all of the tightening occurred, and they were only buying ETFs. Like if you think about things like LQD, Jim, in the, in the investment right. rate bond space, they weren't buying individual names. The only time they bought individual names is when they announced the Thursday before Easter, really to everyone's surprise, that they'd be buying high-yield ETFs and fallen right. angels. So Ford, for example, was a fallen angel. It was an investment-grade corporate bond before the pandemic that then slipped into junk. And those prices jumped materially just on the announcement, right? So if, if, if the market is functioning, Jim, they don't have to buy, right? It's really only, it's like speak softly and carry a big stick. They, they let the market do the tightening and the financial conditions easing for them, but with the real uh, intention that if things got bad, they'd be able to step in, right? So they really don't have to buy in essence because of, 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 of the, the players in the market doing the work for them. Right. It almost sounds like the Godfather, their presence made made yeah. uh, the correction itself. That's right. That's right. But they are explicitly buying in quantitative easing, right? So they do buy treasury bonds and they try and they buy mortgage-backed securities. But on the corporate uh, credit facility announcement, you know, it's 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 a it was a great announcement. It was the pivot point um, in all of this that I give them a lot of credit for, uh, Jim. If, if March twenty third ends up being the bottom of the market. Um, you know, that was 40% ago, so I hope it's the bottom of the market. But if that ends up being the bottom of the market, um, March 23rd is going to go down like March 9th did of 2009, which is when the market bottomed. But I'm going to remember it as the day the Fed made one of their most effective and creative policy announcements in their history. Um, and, and I don't think that's hyperbole to say. So when you say you regard the uh, uh, investment grade corporate bonds almost like the new uh, benchmark in lieu of yeah. the 10-year the government. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we know, the 10-year government yield has been under 1% for a while. Right. Uh, so uh, explain that a little bit more as to why 
our listeners might want to take that into consideration yeah. when looking at interest rates and building the fixed income side of their portfolios. Yeah, that's a good question, Jim, because we we increased our government bonds materially in the middle of March. We had about uh, 35% of our fund in government bonds towards the highest we've ever had it. Um, now that number is about 13%. So we still have some in the portfolio, but we've reduced our government bonds by about 25% since the middle of March. But one of the places where we have increased has been investment-grade corporate bonds. So the reason why I say that is you're able to get between one5 and 2% more yield than the government bond right now. So while government bonds are trading at, I don't know, 60 or 70 basis points, the you, you can add about a percent and a half to 2% on top of that in these investment-grade corporate bonds. And the reason why I say it's the new government bond is because you know, it has the explicit support of the Federal Reserve. So we're using that, Jim, as a ballast, a, a defensive allocation, really for the first time ever. We've always used government bonds as that defense, but from the combination of very, very low rates, okay, and the fact that the Fed has explicitly supported that market, that's why we've, we've pivoted into using that asset class as the new government bond. So... You know, one of one of the concerns uh, that uh, we've had in the investment community, as you well know, uh, and even more so now with uh, interest rates as low as they are, um, it, and it's it's not an argument as to can they go lower because they really can't. So eventually, they do have to go up, and when interest rates uh, start moving up, of course, the value of the bonds. Uh, goes in goes yep. in the opposite direction. So, um, how how uh, how do investors, individual investors, handle that? Uh, whether they want to buy individual bonds and maybe investment grade corporates, uh, or hand that over to an actively managed uh, fund manager, for example. Yeah. So, it 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 pays to really do your homework within fixed income. So your point is very well taken. If we go from, you know, 60 basis points on the 10-year treasury to one, one and a half or 2%, you know, that's going to leave a real mark in terms of the duration impact or the interest rate sensitivity of that particular part of the fixed income market. However, Jim, if we're going to if we're going to one or one and a half percent, I could almost guarantee you, almost, because you know, as you know, Jim, you can't guarantee anything. Past performance is no guarantee of future success. <laughs> um, but I can almost guarantee you that if we're trending one to one and a half percent, I think not only would the stock market be higher in that environment, because you'd be going from an emergency level of interest rates up to something more normal. But within fixed income, that would be a very supportive environment for credit markets. Things like high yield, things that act like fixed income, things like preferred equities, I think, could do okay in that environment because it would signal that growth and, and cyclical growth is coming. Value stocks would do really well in that environment because it would signal a new kind of um, uh, business cycle. So within fixed income, yes, if you're holding government bonds, and that yield goes from 60 to 1% or 150, that's a tough environment. But there are so many parts of the fixed income market, whether it be corporate credit, non-corporate credit, asset-backed securities, non-agency mortgage-backed securities, all of this stuff that I think could flourish in an environment 
where interest rates move higher. Because and Jim, if we don't have, if we don't, if we, if the Fed is not able to normalize rates, mm-hmm. that would be a very bad signal. And I said this all along, even in 2015, when Janet Yellen raised rates for the first time, you know, December of 2015, every chance I got, I was saying, don't fear the Fed. Because if they're raising rates, it's because they are believers and validators of an economic recovery that is usually good for risk assets. While not as good for government bonds because they're safe haven risk off assets, there are plenty of places that you can still make money in fixed income, notwithstanding all of the opportunity that would bring to different pro-cyclical parts of the equity market. So would that suggest that shorter duration bonds would not be the place to be, not only because interest rates are in, in those areas are, are going to uh, be slower to respond, but the growth opportunity simply isn't going to be in, uh, you know, the shorter dated maturities? Right. So I think that that's, you know, it's, it, I, I think of cash as, okay, it's good because you wouldn't lose, but the opportunity cost of holding a short duration instrument like cash or a cash equivalent I think would be really high. Not only wouldn't you be able to keep up with inflation, which usually is about 2%. So if you're getting anything less than 2%, you're, you're losing money. But I think you'd have a hard time keeping up with other parts of the market where when you see a steepening of the yield curve, that's usually a really good sign. Things like financials, things like value stocks, industrials, energy names, you know, all those types of names on a real inflection point in growth uh, I think could really be off to the races versus what we're seeing now, which is a really um, heavy, heavy um, uh, move towards towards growth stocks, right? Like the, the Fangs, the Apples, the Amazons. I don't think those names would be trashed, but I think you would see a real comeback in, in value in that sort of environment, Jim. Interesting. And, you know, let's let's go back for a moment, Phil, to the equity side of the discussion where we started. And uh, I think what you touched on uh, is going to ring true. And that is, uh, you know, we're we're still in the middle innings, to use a baseball analogy, with uh, the the COVID situation. So uh, what we know about the future is that it's unknowable. It, we can't. We can't know what's going to happen in two months, three months, or six months. Um, you know, the short term becomes too much of a challenge. Uh, but what you started to touch on with regards to because of the Fed's past actions, and 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 uh, what they're likely to do eventually, uh, as we slowly come out of this, um, that you know, if if they start to move with interest rates, that investors probably don't want to wait until then in order to take advantage of uh, the credit opportunities that you touched on, but even the equity markets, Mm -hmm. more than likely, they should be paying attention to that now and properly allocating their portfolios. Yeah. Yeah. And Jim, that's, and that's the hard part, right? Because a lot of times, you know, Warren Buffett said, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. Easy for him to say he's a billionaire, but most people, (laughs) Most people are euphoric when everybody else is euphoric. So by the time the Fed rolls around, and basically, and Jim, you know the way they act, right? They're they're very deliberate, the Fed. Um, They're going to err on the side of caution. You know, as I always say, rates go down in an elevator and up in an escalator, right? It just, it happens very, very slowly. Um, But I, I am not telling folks, even with this dramatic run in value stocks and NASDAQ just 
ironically making new highs, right? Um, don't ditch your value. Don't ditch it. We have a we have a bias towards growth. It's hard not to with this much uncertainty around what the shape looks like. Is it a V? Is it a Nike swoosh? Is it a U? Is it a W? Is it an L? Like we've been debating all of the shapes, Jim. Uh, but we would not abandon kind of the pro-cyclical or value names, even though we're tilting towards growth. It shouldn't be, should I be in growth or value? Right. You have to have a little bit of, of both to really have your portfolio resilient enough to stand the test of time, you know, because you'll get positive pops in data and you'll have, and we've seen a lot of positivity uh, that can affect uh, those those stocks in your portfolio. And Jim, we didn't mention Europe. I think Europe is just another really um, kind of tantalizing trade right now because they've never been as close to a fiscal union to match their monetary union since they started this whole Euro experiment. So that's another value type story that has a catalyst of some pretty outside the box and progressive thinking when it comes to stimulus right now. So uh, expand on that a little bit more, if you would, Phil, because Europe, of course, is going to be regarded for the most part more in the developed market because yes. they're larger countries, right. you know, the UK, uh, even though they've exited from, uh, they've gone through Brexit, but, you know, Germany, France, and, and so on. Um, so if, if you could just touch on, and, and as these yeah. minutes kind of wind down on us, uh, but then also a little bit about emerging markets. Sure. Is this a time when the right kind of portfolio should consider an exposure to emerging markets? Yeah, Jim, we have, uh, we are not abandoning EM. We, in our portfolio, we have about uh, 8% of our fund in emerging markets. 6% would be about a, a benchmark weighting. So we're a little bit overweight EM. I think what EM has going for it is that China is basically back when you look at things like their PMI data and their factory output. They're basically back to where they were pre-pandemic. Um, so they have that. Go they ha the emerging world has that going for them, and also the fact that the developed world is starting to become on become more online. So Korea exports, things like that, right, are, are all kind of coming back, which is nice. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention on Europe is the dollar. Um, the what you need for Europe to work is three things. You need the euro to be supported versus the dollar. If the euro is weakening versus the dollar, U.S. investors do not want any part of that. They want to see the dollar weakening versus currencies that they're investing in abroad. And you're seeing that. The second thing you need is it for to be a hated market. You need it to be an unloved market. And Jim, I don't know about you, but 2017 was the only year where it worked. It is a hated market in terms of the chronic underperformance of the US. Nobody owns Europe. The most positive thing you could say is that everybody hates Europe. Um, and then the third thing is the catalyst. And the catalyst that we've noticed over the past couple of weeks has been this, this notion that the European Commission can finally borrow on behalf of, of all of the European Union. It's like the United States of Europe right now. It's an Alexander Hamilton-like moment, right, where the federal right. government can, can, can borrow on behalf of the, of the, of the states. And that's, that's what I think is getting a lot of people's attention right now on Europe. Um, so for those reasons, we've closed our underweight to Europe. We still prefer the U.S., but we don't. We wouldn't want to be short Europe anymore. So what's interesting, and, and we've uh, pretty, we're pretty much winding down with our, our time here, mm -hmm. Phil. But uh, we've touched on a number of uh, areas uh, from uh, U.S. to international uh, equity to fixed income, mm -hmm. and one of the messages that is coming through 
uh, is to have a diversified portfolio, as, as you alluded to, just with the changes within JP Morgan in these initial six months of the year, but then within each of those categories to make sure that you're properly diversified as well. Right. Yeah. And Jim, you know, this was the best 50 day return of the S&P in history. And things don't move by this much because everyone's fully invested, Jim. Uh, the mountain of cash continues to be a tailwind for this market. There's five trillion in money market funds. So that's something that we're keeping a close eye on in terms of, of the next move in the market. OK, well, uh, great, Phil. Thank you. It, um, the, the time went fast. Your insights uh, invaluable. Hopefully. Uh, our listeners have picked up uh, a few things and uh, can take that home. Uh, our next show is with Charles Snyder of Upland Business Capital. They are a middle market financial restructuring firm. Um, and that's certainly bound to be uh, interesting as well. So uh, thanks for listening and uh, thanks for tuning in.